You're listening to Horse Racing Heroes, Episode 7, the wonderful open-eyed, a real hero. Hello there, and welcome along to Episode 7 of Horse Racing Heroes, the racing podcast with no betting tips, no current affairs chat, and with every episode simply being about one great horse or person in racing. And I'll tell you, I have been dying to release this one. This episode is with one of the great characters in Irish racing, Brendan Duke, about a horse he bred, owned and trained by the name of Open-Eyed. Some younger listeners may not be familiar with the horse, but I promise you, whether you know all about him or know nothing about him, you're going to enjoy this episode. Brendan is a really unique personality, really enjoyable to listen to and Back when COVID restrictions allowed it, uh, he kindly had me out to his yard in the Curra to interview him, and it was, it was a great experience. Uh, before we begin, I'll just quickly say thanks to those people who signed up to the Patreon or bought me a pint on the Ko-fi link. Uh, if you're listening to this and would like to support the show in the same way to help me to continue to make more episodes, uh, the links are in the show notes or also on horseracingheroes.com. And now, without further ado, I give you Brendan Duke telling us all about the wonderful Open-Eyed. So Brendan, we're here in the Kerr to talk about your horse, Open-Eyed, but before we get to him, I'd like you to first give us some context around where you were in, in your career before he came along. Well, first of all, I always address him as the wonderful Open-Eyed. I was with Jim Bulger for many years. I had this hankering to train. I'd wanted to train since 1964. I didn't want to do anything else, only train racehorses, although we had no history in the family of training racehorses or having thoroughbred horses. We had a big history of having working horses because our, my grandparents and parents depended on horses for their living and for leisure. They always went to Punchestown in Pony and Traps from Dolphin's Barn and from Kimmage Road West where my mum was born and reared and my father and mother actually met at the races in Punchestown. So there was a big history of horses there. I came along, Daddy, I was a completely different era like everyone needs to understand that. I mean, the big lion then was children shall be seen and not heard. And I think you were a child till you were 20. But I was lucky enough to get brought racing when I was 11 um, to Leopardstown Christmas meeting. And of course it was the era of Arco. And that certainly caught the imagination and then later in the 60s, I used to make it my business to go racing whenever Lester Pickett was coming over to ride for the absolutely fantastic, never to be again, um, Dr. Vincent O'Brien. And I used to go to the races to see him riding and my younger sister Paula used to come along with me. and. Um, 
I was just, that was the end of it, like I was addicted anyway, but when that era came, I was just always going to train racehorses, although my, my sainted mother, an absolutely fabulous person, used to sit me down, they sent me to CUS, which was fee paying, and there were 10 of us, so it was not simple. Um, she used to sit me down and say, look, Brendan, I don't want you to have to work as, as hard as your dad. You work hard at school and get a proper job. In those days, a proper job was either the bank or the civil service, A or B. They were proper jobs. And I remember sitting on the chair in the kitchen in Cromwell and saying, look, mom, one day at lunchtime, I used to come home from my lunch. If I galloped down to White Fire Street Church, I could get the 55 home, have my lunch, and get the same bus back into Camden Street by the time it would have gone up to the terminus and back, and then gallop back up by Stevens Green to COS. And um, I remember saying, look, Mommy, I will work really hard at school, but let's make one thing clear. I'm going to try and race horses. And she said, child of grace, she said to me, do you understand that you must have money to train racehorses? If you work hard at a career, maybe someday you'll be able to do that. And I said, well, look, I said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to find a way of doing it. And that's basically how it started. I met up with Jim in 1977. I made it my business to meet with him. Um, his horses appeared. I went racing. I never had any interest in backing horses. <coughs> I loved the competition of racing and I loved looking at horses. I just, and I loved being around horses. And I still love being around horses. And I still love looking at horses. Um, and about 1976, I noticed these horses starting to appear at the races and they were just different, <laughs> the way they were turned out. And I remember I bought a filly, she was subsequently called Auntie Molly by um, Wishing Star out of a Sangador mare for 220 guineas at the December sale in Tattersalls in Balls Bridge, 6th of December. Um, she was as crooked as X, but um, Wishing Star was by Reform, and when Reform was born, the, when the owner saw the foal, he suggested to the stud groom that they put him down because he was never going to race. Clearly that didn't happen, so I forgave her. Although 220 guineas was a fortune to me at the time, to be honest. This was 1977. <coughs> and I made it my business to meet Jim. I was going into Leopardstown, and there was a doubt about the meeting being on. There was plenty of frost, and Jim was walking up to the track with Noel Mead and um, I said excuse me Mr Bolger I said um, I'd like to speak to you for a minute he said sure he said I said I'm Brendan Duke I said I've bought a foal and I would really like you to train her and he said why would you like me to train her because I said I think you're going to be a champion trainer 
I said, that's what I think. Oh, he says, he says not too many tell me that. Well, I said, that's what I think. I said, oh, that's the way it is. Well, he said, when the time comes, you start, you tell, you ring me. And he said, I will tell you now that I will take the filly. Thank you, I said. I subsequently tried to get him, get two friends of mine to send him a filly. And he came out and looked at the filly, said what they needed to do for them to take the filly, but they weren't prepared to do what he wanted them to do. And remember the day I brought my filly down to him. He said to me, in the name of God Almighty, how am I going to get the condition off her? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, um, now he said, you know, I'm delighted to have the filly. Uh, but he said, if she's no good, I would expect you to take her away. I said, that's absolutely fine, 100%. But I said, she will be good. Okay, he said, that's fair enough. And he said, by the way, he said, <clears throat> do you, do you, you could get your first month's training fees by backing Exalted in the Victor Ludorum at Haydock on Saturday. John Harty was riding him, Lord of mercy on John. And I said, Mr. Bodger, I don't, he says, it's Jim. I said, I don't back horses. Well, he said, look, he said, why don't you back this one? And he said, if it loses, your first month won't cost you anything. Right? Horse was running on a Saturday um, in Haydock, and I remember distinctly there was a small bucky shop in Cromlin and I went in and I had 25 euros on this house it wasn't a month's training fees but it wasn't a million miles away either I think it was running at quarter to two or something at Haydock and I never had any problem eating in my life I still don't but Mammy put up the dinner and I said, Mammy, I can't eat that dinner. I said, there's a horse running here at quarter to two and I've backed it and I want to see this horse running. <laughs> and of course he won half the track <laughs> and I rang him afterwards. I said, I so appreciate you doing No, no, not at all. He said, you're very welcome. And we kind of, we just hit it off and any spare time then I had, I used to go down and spend a bit of time with him he was living in Sheepmore at that time. And um, it went from there. <laughs> but I had this gnawing thing to train. And I said to him in the very late 90s, I said, Jim, I really want to train, but there's no chance of me doing it here. I wouldn't have the firepower to do it <coughs> but I said there seems to be more opportunities for horse now I'd only ever visited England I hadn't been in England and I said um, if an opportunity arises Jim I'm going to go I said why would you do something like that he said training horses here he said I'm the one that carries the can why would you want to give yourself that kind of hardship and I said look at all the horses here and I said, yes, Jim, but I said, your name is on the sheet. Oh, he said, so we're looking for lights. I said, no. I said, we're actually not looking for lights. But I said, it's just something that I really, really want to do.
I leave it with Jesus. But I don't think he really thought that it was going to happen. And then I saw an ad in the paper for Charlie Mann looking for a assistant and a head lad. Okay. So I rang him up and he said, will you come over for an interview? I said, I will. And I arrived at Birmingham Airport and then Ed Vaughan was working with Charlie at the time and Ed picked me up at Birmingham Airport and I went up and met Charlie. And there was about 35 horses there. And of course, it was a huge plus having been with Jim, right? And he said to me, which job will you take? I said, you don't need an assistant and a head lad. I said, for 35 horses, Charlie. I said, I'll do both. Do both, he said. I said, yeah. And I said, this is a beautiful place and great facilities. I said, I'd like to be thinking that you'd have 50 winners, that we'd have 50 winners. No, 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 he says, that won't be happening. Brendan, he said, I'd be very happy with 25 to 30 winners. Well, I said, look, I'm really grateful. I'm grateful for you collecting me, having me collected. But I said, I would have no interest in the job whatsoever if you didn't think that we could train 50 winners here. He said, hold on for a minute. He says, I would love to have 50 winners. But he said, I don't think it can happen. Oh, I said, I don't see why it couldn't happen. So anyway, I went, now I said, I will only do this job. I said, straight up on the table. I said, I will only do this job for one year because I said, I need to find my way around England and I need to see what the logistics are here of setting up. That's fair enough, he said, Brendan. We were very unlucky that year. Because in 2001, the foot and mouth kicked in. We were on 45 winners. It closed up from January. But the, Charlie got a, a number of new owners and it was a great year. And I'd brought, I had two mares, I brought them over. And um, they'd fall there. And um, it was this small yard in um, Lambourne Covington Stables, and I decided that we'd set up there, and that's how I was in Lambourne. Fantastic. And then that year, 2001, was the year in which the wonderful Open Night, to give him his proper name, uh, was born in he March. He was born. He was born. He was by Keelock. He was out of a mare who was called Eilet because she, ne she never raced because she had only one eye. I actually bought her off at um, one of the lads in Jim's, John Hayes. John is still with Jim to this day. And um, I, when I was with Jim, we hadn't very many of them, but we had a number of chief crown horses. And I absolutely really liked those horses. They were grand horses to be around. There were no surprises when you got to the races. What they were doing on the gallops, they did on the race course. And this horse had come to Tara Stud, a horse called Key of Luck, and he was by Chief's Crown. 
and he had done a faster time when he won in Dubai than the great American cigar. And I firmly believe to this day that a good horse can do a slow time, but a bad horse can't do a fast time. And it was, he was, he was extremely impressive. So I, he was very affordable as well. And um, I decided that I was going to send Eilish to um, Key of Luck. And that's how Open Eyed came along. The name obviously then? Was a combination of, you know, the mayor only hadn't been called Eilish. Mm-hmm. And he's by Key of Luck Open. Yeah, that's why that happened. Brilliant. And so how was he in those early years? What's, what kind of personality he was, is he? Got? He's the very same as he is today. Um, exuberant, um, not big, but had this idea in his head that he was 17 too and 550 kilos. He wasn't. He was 15 three with a good set of shoes on him. And that's as big as he was. But he didn't think that way. And he came along at a time where he was probably like it is now here, if we're being absolutely on the table with this. I was really struggling for winners. Now I only had eight horses. Obviously I have more horses now. Um, But I was really struggling for horses. I'd had um, Black Church, Black Church Miss, she won six for me. But this horse came along anyway and we brought, broke him, got him riding, got him going. Mick Thornley of um, Lambourne fame was working with me. He rode him out. And from day one, every single day was a comedy session because he absolutely took the piss out of Mick and Mick would never in his life did he slap him, ever. But he would be giving out strips to him and the more he'd give out to him, the more he'd try and annoy him, okay? So Mick said to me one day in October, now we were really struggling, but I liked him. I liked him. And Mick said to me one day in October, he said, why don't you run this little prat? (laughs) And I said, Mick, I said, he's not quite there. He said, he has me, I'm so annoyed, he said, with him. I said, well, I said, hold on now for a minute. I said, we've come this far with him. I said, just hang on for the moment. And I walked in two weeks before Christmas and he was tacking him up and I said to him, by the way, I said, I'm going to run this horse at Cheltenham on New Year's Day in the listed bumper. And quote unquote, he said to me, well, you're fucking madder than him. Okay. Okay. He said, I, I see where he gets it from now. Well, I said, now Mick, I said, I'm real happy with this horse. Jesus Christ, he says, do you understand Cheltenham? He said, that's a winner's bumper, isn't it? Yeah, I said, a mile and a half. Oh, he says, right. He says, am I bringing him? 
Oh, I said, I wouldn't dare. I said, do you out of your Christmas present? <laughs> I said, you're definitely bringing it, right? Oh, I said, that's going to be a great New Year's Eve. And, um, <laughs> well, I said, well, you do what you like. But I said, make sure that he's in Cheltenham on New Year's Day. And I actually really fancied him, mm. to be honest. And Charlie Studd was riding him. And Charlie had been riding him out since when he was working. Charlie would ride him out twice a week since about September. And I thought that Charlie was real tidy, got on well with him and had a very good pair of hands. But Charlie hadn't won, hadn't ridden a winner for 392 days. But he wasn't riding any horses that could win. Mm -hmm. The horses he was riding, it could be a thousand and ninety-two days. There's no, no reflection on him whatsoever. I had promised him to ride on the horse because he was coming in and riding him work and wouldn't take any money. So I said, Charlie, you're riding this horse on, on um, New Year's Day at Cheltenham. That's great, he says. I said, I think he'll win. So I arrived in Cheltenham anyway and I met a guy from home and when you're not going well you'll always get loads of encouragement and you're standing outside the way room quite a big punter I knew that and he said to me why do you do this and I said what am I doing for Jesus sake he said what are you doing running that horse in a listed bumper first time out he said do you understand what you're taking on he said, JP's horse will win this. Tom Taff had sent over a horse belonging to JP. And he said, sure, you're only making yourself look bad. Well, I said, look, a very happy new year to you. And I said, I think you have a great chance. He said, you telling me you think you'll win? I said, I think I'll be in the three. I said, I think I'll be in the three. And the next one I met was Alan King. And I really, really like Alan King. And we were good professional friends when I was in Lambourne. But I had beaten um, Alan King in a bumper in Newbury on a very, very foggy day with a filly making her debut, returned at 100 to 1, and he had a 64 chance in the race, right? And I had arrived in Kempton with a three-year-old hurdler, a very, very, very good horse. And I was standing up, he was the only three-year-old hurdler I had, and I was standing up on the stand, and Alan walked up, and he says, how do you think you'll run? Oh, I said, I think this will win. How do you work that out? He said, well, I said, he said, this horse of ours, Brandon, he said, is really, really good. He said, he's the best we have. Well, I said, to be honest with you, Alan, I said, this is the best that I have. Okay? He said, that's being honest with you. Noel was riding my horse, a horse called Katie's Tutor. Anyway, I give a really good impression of a football hooligan when I have one in contention. 
And this was really important. He had a difficult enough owner. Troublesome Jim would probably call him. But I'd say difficult enough. And I'd said this horse will win. And at the second last he took it up. And I kept shouting, turn him loose now, turn him loose, turn him loose. And he won 26 lengths. Alan was second. And Alan said to me after in the owners and trainers, in the name of Christ Almighty, he said, how loose did you want him to turn him? <laughs> <laughs> he, he said, we had a really good bet on this horse. I said, I did tell you. Oh, he said, you did. But New Year's Day, anyway, the second person I met was Alan. And he said to me, well, he said, Happy New Year. I said, thanks, Alan. I know one thing. He said, you won't be beating me today. They had won, he'd won in it, belonged to members of the jockey club called Signorita Rombolita. And she'd won 10 lengths at Newbury on her debut. I said, she was impressive in Newbury. Oh, I said, you ain't seen nothing yet. I said, my feels pretty smart. I don't care how smart he is, he says. He won't be beating this first time out. He said, I can tell you that. He said, how long has it since your jockey rode a winner? Oh, I said, sure, don't worry about that. I said, the jockey won't, won't be the one that'll make the difference here of him not winning. And they were very good in, to us in Cheltenham. I, I think up to the COVID thing, the same. They would always give the owners and trainers um, their lunch, and a very nice lunch it would be. I'm very well looked after. And two of my owners could come on New Year's Day, four of my owners could come on New Year's Day, and there was another man who is recently enough deceased, Graham Hancock. He was pretty active in the greyhound industry, uh, racing greyhounds, and he'd asked me about getting involved, and I said, yeah. I said, we'd be delighted if you get involved. I said, come to Cheltenham on New Year's Day, I said, and see do you like the experience? And Brian Goldswain and his wife Barbara, Lord of Mercy on Barbara, Ruth Topper and um, Tom were there, Tom Fletcher, Ruth's partner. And um, there's myself and Angie there. And when the lunch was over, now I am absolutely in a state because I think this horse is going to win okay but I am in a state over him and um, Ruth says to me what do you really think Brendan I said Ruth I really fancy this horse but how could you fancy him she says do you see what he's running against because I said he's really good He's really good, I said, Ruth, and he's really brave. And I said, it's not going to make a whole lot of difference to him because I said, he's going to think he's the biggest horse in the race. And I've told him that he's right. So I said, I think, I think we have a great chance. And Brian said to me, Brian said, Brendan, what do you think is, is the danger? Look, Brian, I said, obviously the danger is Senorita Rombolita. I said, I have huge respect for Alan King. And I said, he is chock-a-block and was delighted to tell me that this time he was going to be beating me. 
Okay? So I said, that is the obvious danger. And I got up from the table and Graham said to me, turn down an absolutely horrible day. It was absolutely spilling. And Graham said to me, do you fancy this horse, Brenda? I said, Graham, I think this is a right horse. I said, he's very little, but I said, he's, I think he's a right horse. And he was 150 to one. Okay, <laughs> so moved on, tacked them up. And to the last day he ran, from the first day he went to the races, when you would appear in the doorway with the saddle, Mick had have pulled him in, he went through this yoga session. He would stretch his front legs right out in front of him and start groaning. And then he'd flex his back legs and he'd go back stretching again. And it didn't matter what pressure you were under for time with the saddle. It wasn't going on him until he said, right, work away now. It just wasn't happening, okay? So, and he never changed. To the last day he ran, that's the way it was. Anyway, we're standing in the rain and um, Brian and Barbara, Esther Sol and Tom and uh, Ruth and Graham and they said to me, what are we, what are you telling us now? I said, there's no change here. And Brian and Angie and Barbara, not to be minuscule pumper, to punters, but they said to me, do you think it's worth doing the forecast? He's 66 to one now. So someone obviously had a fiver on him, okay? I said, yeah, I said, I do think it's worth doing the forecast. And he jumped out and he tried to make all and Senorita Rombolita came to join him just outside the, the, the furlong marker. Now they were a week clear of the rest. The rest didn't count, but she bumped him. But that was a real help because he just said, no, this ain't happening. Although it was his first run and it was the first time he'd ever been away from Lambor as well. And he put his head down and he won a neck. And um, that was just an unbelievable feeling. I bred him. I'm sorry about this, but no, he, does, no, no, no. He, he does this to me. I bred him. I was absolutely depending on him, although I hadn't got one cent on him. And he went, um, when he needed to take his coat off, when the die was cast, there's plenty of people and horses that tell you that they're tough. But when it comes to displaying that they're tough and you need a friend, he was some friend. And no one came, no, no, none of the press came down after the race. He was a 66 to 1 child. I think Alan's was 6 to 4. But that was just so special. And um, Alan walked over to me in the, in the winner's enclosure, which now he had the jockey club members looking at him 
and I think they were somewhat perplexed. But Alan walked over to me and said, very well done, Brendan. I said, thanks, Alan. But he said, I need to tell you something. I said, go. He said, you're some pain in the arse. <laughs> <laughs> I said, Alan, I said, this is, you'll hear a lot more about this horse. I said, this is a very, very special horse. And all through his career, um, he won his novice hurdle at Cheltenham in the April. Um, Anthony McCoy rode him. We started him off over fences in Stratford. He won on his debut. Noel rode him. I fancied coming over and um, having a go at the like a butterfly with him in Just grade three. A grade three in Tipperary on Champions Day, the, the first. Um, Sunday in October, Noel couldn't come over. I asked Davy Russell to ride him. Davy rode him, told him everything about him. He won. I, I walked into Tipperary that day. I had a horse there running in a two-year-old race, Saphonical Storm, right? And um, the first person I met was Shami Heffernan. And of course, I knew Shami very well from um, Jim's. And he says to me, well, I hope the chaser wins, because he says, I don't know what you're doing here. I said, um, I said, well, the chaser will win. And I said, the two-year-old won't be too far away. Stop, he said. He was riding a horse called Chinese Whisper. He was 41 on. Um, he think he's won four. But I was watching this horse on the television, this Chinese Whisper, right? And I just had a suspicion I had no evidence for it, but I had a suspicion that he needed to make it. Okay? Now, I got the... I, Kevin wasn't available to ride him because Jim wanted him in um, lawn shop. And um, I said to Jim... I rang Jim and I said, do you need Kevin on Sunday? I do, he says. Why? I said, I have a horse, a two-year-old in Tipperary, Jim, but I said, it's really, really important that I have someone riding this horse that's going to take me at my word and do what they're told. David Moran, he said. I said, will he definitely do what he's told, Jim? 100%, he said, and he can ride as well. I said, that's fair enough. Then he was claiming seven. He couldn't claim in this race. And I said to Shamey, he said, two rows, no chance, Brandon. I said, fair enough, um, uh, Shamey. I said, thanks for that. But I said, just, I said, if you have a minute there, give the lad some body dial a ring and tell them to put a bit of extra straw in his box because I said he needs a big sleep tonight when he's finished with mine. Okay. And David Moran came out to me and I said, look, David, I fancy the horse. <coughs> I said, I could be really wrong here, but I said, I need you to do something for me. I said, I need you to jump out and make the running. I said, I don't care how quick you have to go to make the running. I said, don't let Jeremy Herfin and Tars lead you. I said, if he's gone at the bend, he's gone. I'll put both hands up. But I said, you make it, Alan. I said, is that clear? 100%. And I said, you will do that. Look, he says, <laughs> Brendan, he said, my last instruction from the boss was, if I don't do what I told, I'm not going to work tomorrow. 
Well, I said, that's fair enough. And we jumped out and they went mad for a furlong and a half. And Shamey decided that he wasn't going to be that naked and he dropped in behind them. He never got to him. He never got to I, I don't think it was that he couldn't. I don't think so, but he wouldn't. And he won as well. That was a fantastic day. But I said to David Russell, I said, David, this will win. I said, you can take your time on it. I said, you can ask him in Torless to take off at these fences. I said, it'll be quite safe. And I remember Dave, um, Dave, he pulled him up and he came back to me beaming and he says to me, the two of you, he says, are some details. I said, <laughs> I said, him more than me. Oh, I said, what a right horse this is. Yeah. Um, and there was, the, there was a Gigginstown hot pot that day. One cool cookie. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, yeah. But anyone that, that can look back at that, you look at what he did at the last. But he did that. He did that all his career. He did, wasn't totally focused on the one he was coming to. It was the one ahead of that he was watching, and he, he just he's so quick through the air. Like every time he went out, every time he went out. I was not worth three cheers. He's an absolutely brilliant jumper, but brave. And every time he went out, he would lay his life on the line for you. And you never want that to happen to your friends, human or equine. And he was such a friend. And you knew that this is what you were going to get he went out, he ran against Gungadoo in Cheltenham in a novice chase. Gungadoo, long odds on, jumped out to make all. But he came down, he would be sighting a fence, the fence after the one he was coming to jump. And he came down to the last in Cheltenham with Gungadoo in front and he launched himself at the fence. Now, he still got comprehensively beaten by a much better horse, but they were 18 or 20 lengths in front of the third horse. And it's amazing how people love their racing. That's not amazing, but love their horses and people you don't really know. And I remember Harry Beebe walking up to me when I walked out of the ring in Cheltenham when he was second to Gungadoo. And he said, he is a remarkable horse, Brendan. He said, I've never seen a horse jump the last in Cheltenham like that. I said, look, I need to have a cup of coffee. Because I said, that's what he does. He came out and he was second in the steel plate sections, novice chase, the standing ovation. He, um, he just, was and is a very very special friend is what he is and the one day that i felt really sorry for the horse i absolutely fancied him out of the way to ring to win the kim york this was 2008 yeah. festival. i really really fancied him and like every racehorse trainer or any racehorse owner, it's all about Cheltenham. And I thought that he really deserved 
to have a real day in the sun. He had a day, he two days in Cheltenham um, already in the winner's enclosure, but I had this big thing about the fluke wall on Kim Muir, because I think fluke wall was a fabulous trainer and a legend in the game. And I am very conscious to this day when I walk into a parade ring or one of mine walks into the winner's enclosure on the occasions that that happens, that at the like of Cheltenham or Ascot or the big festivals, the Galway, the Leopardstowns, the Listowels, Air, that they are walking in the footsteps of giants. And history means an awful lot to me. And at the end of the day, those horses and those people were the forerunners to us still being going today. But I had a huge, never met, was lucky enough to meet Fluke Wall, and I knew Peter very well. Peter was very, very good to me in um, Lambourne. He'd always call in, how are you going, Brendan? And he was very, very helpful to me. But I'd never had the pleasure of meeting Fluke Wall, and um, it just meant an awful lot to me. Now, where his bad luck came in was that on the Wednesday it was to be run, on the Wednesday that year, Cheltenham was abandoned because of the wind. It was a because of the wind. And there was a ferocious amount of rain. And they decided that they would run the Kim Muir on the Thursday, but they would run it at the la as the last race. And by the time that came around, his ground had virtually gone. Ross O'Sullivan was riding him for me. I said, look, Ross, I thought this horse would not get beat. But I said, circumstances outside of both our controls have conspired against him. But I said, the fundamental thing here is, Ross, I said, I want you to try and win the race. But I said, make sure nothing happens to him. I said, you just make sure that nothing happens to this horse. I said, it can't. So I said, do the best you can. And I, but I said, mind him. I'll do that, he said, Brendan. And he had to pick his ground with him. He missed a couple of fences because of the state of the ground. But at the top of the hill, he was within 25 lengths of them. And I knew when he got to the top of the hill in Cheltenham, he'd be heading home and he'd be hearing me calling him as well. And um, although he wasn't in sight to the vast, but the other thing about him was that in the preview of the race, the analysts were going down through the runners. Now, obviously, I didn't see this at the time, but they were fairly dismissive of his chance, and um, that was wrong, but they were dismissive of his chance. But I started calling him, and he started running, and he finished like a train. He slightly overjumped the last. Evan Williams' horse won.
um, he slightly overjumped the last. Now, there were two things about it, there were a couple of things about the race, a number of things. The first thing was that I was unbelievably proud of him. He was given the winner weight and Phil Smith subsequently decided after the race that the winner was a stone while in. Okay, he beat him six lengths. But the reception that he got in the number two, um, I will always remember that. And many people that day, now he had a following, he had a following, um, I will always remember that because he got a better reception, a bigger reception than the winner. But he actually, if, if there was real justice, I think he would, have, he would have won that race. But I take the view that your man upstairs was on holidays and he left a Muppet in charge. That's the view I take. But the Wednesday cost us the race, really. The Wednesday cost us the race. But I, I was as proud of him as if he'd won the race. I was hugely relieved that he was back safe. And I was also very relieved that he proved the pundits were a far way offside in being dismissive of his chances. You mentioned his, his following. Do you think that was his, his attitude and his bravery? And I think it was a number of things. I was very different in the UK to, the, um, to what, obviously, um, at the races had come on the scene. And they seemed to like to interview me. But they didn't kind of get the standard trainers interview that they had become accustomed to first of all winning is everything for me and yes i do get quite emotional i particularly appreciate horses that go out there and are laying their life on the line for you as he did every day every day and I suppose that comes across. I also tell it as I see it, whether that's always right. It can't be always right, but I'm not afraid to say if I was asked before a race, as I was many times, do you fancy this? And if I fancied it, I would say, yes, I do fancy it. And if I didn't fancy it or I thought it wasn't good enough, I would say, I don't think he's quite good enough. You know, I didn't have any problem saying that. Now, I got a lot of stick from my peers about that, that you were putting your head in a halter before the race. But I just took the view, and I still take the view, you either know or you don't. You know, like if you're getting up in the morning at the crack of dawn, and you're living with these horses, and you're watching every move of them, think you need to know what you have. Now, there'll always be horses that will come along that you're that excited that when you come in after first lot that you can't eat your breakfast. You think you found an aeroplane. 
and they go to the races and say, I'm really sorry, but I don't do this. You know, like that, 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 that will happen. It's happened before, it happens now. And I suppose if we're sitting here in 104 years time, it'll be still happening. But I am not afraid. I don't feel anyway bad if it does. I feel bad if one of mine runs really bad for an inexplicable reason. But um, I hate cheating. I have no time for people to cheat and I have no time for horses to cheat. But I am not afraid to say this is what I think. And I do think that's one area where racing it has got a bit better. But I still think there's far, far too much mystique around racing from the point of view that trainers are not as proactive at the races as they need to be. Like you look at the basketball coaches and players in America, you look at Alex Ferguson, the special one as he calls himself, all of those players. The guys that are, I know the sponsors are hugely important. But basically the people that get into their cars or get on trains or pull on their shoes or sandals or runners and go to the races or go to those football matches, they are basically paying their wages. Okay? And I don't have any problem communicating with the general public. And if someone asks me, now I'm probably in a position, a pretty privileged position, that the majority of my owners don't punt but and maybe the ones that do punt that's why I don't have really any of them I am not afraid if someone asks me a straight question do you fancy this do you think you have a chance um, I say yes I do or I, I, I don't think I have a chance and I think the following in England <coughs> came about in many ways because I would talk to everybody and I saw everyone at the races and I see everyone at the races as being really important people. There are an awful lot of ex-army people on doors at race courses holding ropes and thinking of sand down and people like that and I would talk to all of them and many of them would come to me and say, Mr. Duke, which I wasn't christened Mr. Duke, it cost my mother and father two and six to have me called Brendan. So Brendan is fine. And I would, they would feel comfortable enough to say, they'd be having pounds and fivers like, you know what I mean? That they would be shaking, doing William Hill out of their Christmas dinner or anything like that and I'd say yes I do have a chance and it's amazing if they had a pound or a fiver and even if it was six to four I think it's just the fact that you would tell them that you fancy the horse mm-hmm. now mine would usually be big prices and then the Lambourne Open Day got to know enough Lambourne Open Day was absolutely huge in those days and people would come from all over the country and there were a bus load of people every single year would come to Lambourne and come to me to see open eyed and have pictures with him and that kind of thing, you know? But um I suppose it was a bit of the David versus Goliath as well. Mm-hmm. But I haven't given up 
on putting that fluke ball and um, Kim Muir thing right. I haven't got one at the moment, but I've not given up on going back there and writing that. I am still hoping to do that. But your man is fine. In fact, he's out with two fillies about eight miles from here. <laughs> the place where he is, the man that had one of the fillies out <laughs> said to me no later than Sunday, he said, that's some prat, he said, that open eyes. And I said, what is wrong with, what's wrong with, with, with you, Liam? Jesus, Brendan, he said, I went out. The filly had a bit of a drop in her foot and he said, I went out with the farrier to sort it out. He said, you would want to see the carry on out of that prat around us. I said, but you would no business being with her. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> She's his. You Did you not know that? Oh, he said, what a prat. I said, well, I said, he's never been any different. And he still skips around. You wouldn't believe that he was nine. Now, he is well-minded, but he has earned every every bit of being minded. Still going like that at the age of 19? Oh, he is. He's a, ball. He's, he's a clown. Like He he is. And he, he's still, when you're putting, obviously, a rug on him in the winter, if you're organising his rug or fixing his rug, he's still going on with this yoga carry-on because he just can't help himself. It's the way he is. Mm. That's the way he is. If I could ask you, you mentioned you would tell people when you fancy them. And this is a day, I have a little video of it. I reckon you told a couple of people you fancied them this day. Third from home. So Major Miller is out in front. And AP and Goddier's Prick rather dives over this quick and clear of Milo. Gone on by about eight or ten lengths from Milo and into Hannah Magnifico. And open-eyed is a very sandy beaten fifth. Failed to live up to expectations here this afternoon. Major Miller comes I'd down to the second from He's got a four-length lead. In fact, Open Eye is trying very hard to get on terms, and this lad in second place there, the course did look hopeless, but Major Miller stole a bit of a march at the third from home, and now Intihan is rushing home on the outside, and amazingly, Open Eye has taken up the running. Open Eye has gone on now from Milo Intihan, Major Miller, who stopped completely, so in fact, the confidence was very justified here. Open Eye has absolutely romped home in the end. Open eyed and are a confident Noel So many ways that day at Utoxeter typified him. This was two thousand and nine yeah. after that. Yeah. Now the thing about that was the horse was very heavily backed. I can truthfully say that yet again I had absolutely no money on him, okay? Anyone asked me, I said, I fancy him, he's in great form. I'd say the commentator wakes up in the night and gets a towel to wipe his brow every time he thinks of that. But he just didn't understand that when I started calling him and he got to a certain stage in the race, like, I would be on the Zoobs for three or four days after he'd run, okay? And the Manuka honey, every time. But he didn't understand that when he started motoring and I started calling him, that he just, as I say, he would put his life on the line to you. Absolutely. But he was a brilliant jumper. 
he one day in Cheltenham, Mark Wall was riding him. He got brought down, but that was the only time he ever in his life looked like falling. That he did fall. He he was a very light on his feet. Very um, ah, oh, he was just a, a, a terrific athlete. But he did his warm up beforehand, like he didn't go out cold to run. Is that's the way he was, and he he loved he loved racing. He we brought us to air. He ran really well in the air. Grand National um, ground went on and probably didn't say the trip that day either. Went to the stole did what it did, still does it to this day. Started off really nice ground. The rain came um, on the Tuesday, the Nationals on Wednesday, and the ground was gone from. He still took his coat off and ran a really, really fine race. Mm. You know, it's just. It's just a horse of a lifetime, really. Um, I have a few. He ran 66 times in just five and a half years. Six wins, a bumper, three hurdles, two chases, seven seconds and four thirds. I mean, and he, he very rarely needed a break, seemingly. He just seemed to love his racing. Oh, he, he was, he was teak tough. He loved racing. And that is why um, I probably people would think, look, he's a horse, but he's I could walk in to him and say, look, I need you to run because I had nothing else. And he would never say to me, well, you can fuck off. I only ran two weeks ago. Do you know what I mean? Or do you see what I'm going out to run against? Do you know what I mean? Like, but he never thought that way either. He never thought that way. He just said, yeah, I'll be there. You need me, that's all right. You can call on me, I'll run for you. And he did run. He was, there was nearly been a huge tragedy at Punchestown in the Banks race. He'd run very well in Punchestown and Cheltenham in his first Banks race. And actually it was very early in the race. Um, the bank, as you come come back to come up he fractured his shoulder but luckily enough we were able to save him but he never was going to be asked to run again after that all I just wanted him was to get well and come back and he is in he probably could have come back but that was planted in my mind that he fractured his shoulder and that was not happening no way <laughs> No, that wasn't happening. No, it was just a fantastic, he's still a fantastic horse. He still, he still makes me laugh every day. I see him, I don't see him about five days a week. I have a person that looks after him and feeds him every day. But he still makes, he still makes me laugh, you know. And for your career at that point to have a horse who can run, I mean, he ran in every month of the year. Yeah, and he, he turned up at all the festivals as well, like, you know, where do you, where do you get these? You know, where do you get them? They just do not come along very often. Um, I would, if it were now, but it's not, I would probably, like, you look at the horses running now, the really good horses, they are target trained. They are asked to run three, 
maximum of four times in the year. Um, but we, I don't regret a minute of him and I'm so grateful to all the people that used to come and see him racing and come to see him in Lambourne and supported him. I think about them regularly and it's great to get an opportunity like this to say he's as bold as he ever was and he's absolutely fine. And at the moment you think he'd live to be a hundred. <laughs> Just a very very special horse that came along and every day I obviously I think about him every day and I'm grateful to him every single day that I get up I am grateful to him so I always call him the wonderful open-eyed because I truly for me he was a very, very special horse and is a very special horse. Brendan, thanks so much for your time and telling me all. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed that, so thank you so much. You're very welcome. I hope that your listeners enjoy it. I have no doubt they and will. And I am always available to speak with anyone about him or any of the horses. I'm sorry for getting a bit, but he makes me emotional. Any time I think of the things he did for me, I am just incredibly grateful to that horse for what he did. Now, don't turn off folks, there's still a little bonus to come, but uh, firstly, massive thanks to Brendan. Amazing to hear him speaking about a horse he clearly absolutely adores, and I'm sure anyone listening will hope he one day trains the winner of the Kim Muir at Cheltenham. But... You will hopefully remember that video I played him, where Open-Eyed wins at Utoxeter, having been written off in the commentary. The commentator that day was Ian McKenzie, and I managed to get a quick call with Ian to ask him about it. So Ian, I'm, I'm here to ask you about a horse, the wonderful Open-Eyed, who ran um, a great day in Utoxeter in 2009, and I was wondering if you, if you remember that day at all. Uh, yes, I do, um, for all the wrong reasons as far as I was concerned, but all the right reasons um, for Brendan, I'm sure, who I know bred open-eyed, and uh, that would have been a fantastic day at Utoxeter for him. Yeah, it was indeed, and your commentary, you kind of write him off in the run. Um, is that I some... Yes, I haven't listened to it again, but I certainly um, do remember on the home turn uh, writing him off, and then of course he got back in for the action. Absolutely, yeah. Did, did you get any stick for it or anything afterward? Um, no, I don't think so, because I think that um, the things that give you stick nowadays weren't in existence then. I'm sure um, that if there had been Twitter and things, I would probably have um, garnered a bit of rage and outright um, uh, confusion, really, for what I said. That's great, Ian. Well, I'm sure I'm sure uh, Brendan has, has since forgiven you for the commentary, and it was very nice to hear from you, so thanks so much for taking the call. Yes, and give my best wishes to uh, Brendan. I know he's moved over to Ireland now, and I hope he's enjoying it uh, a lot over there. He seems to be, and I can tell you, open-eyed is enjoying himself still at the grand old age of 19, so he's oh, forgiving you too. fantastic, because I thought he'd injured himself at Punchestown, but uh, he's obviously recovered from that's that. That's right, that's right. He was injured and but retired, but he's, uh, he's alive and well, so... Oh, brilliant, well done. Well, Ian, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, uh, thank you very much indeed, Mark. All the best. Many thanks to Ian McKenzie, a real gentleman, even when being pestered by a stranger about a commentary that happened over a decade ago. And my thanks also to the great Kevin Blake, who was very helpful in the making of this episode. And thank you for listening. 
If you enjoyed the show, do let me know for my delicate ego. And let others know too. Spread the good word. If everyone who listens tells one person and they tell one person and so on, you know, next thing you know, I'm, I'm Joe Rogan. If you would like to support the show and help me to make more episodes, you've got two options. There's the Patreon, which will let you make a monthly contribution, or there's the Ko-fi link, coffee link, I don't know, uh, which is a really simple, quick way to make a one-off contribution, which I've dubbed as buying me a pint. So, you know, just imagine it simply seeing me in the pub. Oh, hey, Mark. Enjoyed the podcast? Let me get you a pint. Hmm, thank you very much. That's very kind. No problem. What do you have? A pint of Guinness, I suppose. They're changing the Guinness cake. Do you want to get something else? I'll be waiting for ages. Well, yeah, no problem. I'll, uh, I'll have a Smithix. They don't do Smithix here. Oh, forget it. And now, the music commentary mashup ending. Uh, I did try to get hold of Open Eyes' debut in that Cheltenham bumper, but I couldn't get it. Um, if anyone can dig it out somehow, please do tweet it to me. Um, I'd love to see it. Um, but for now, we'll hear that call by Ian one more time with a song called Don't Give Up by The Noisettes. Enjoy and thank you for listening. and then comes phone in driven along on the rails then is empty Han. open eyed still going out very wide on the outside of captain beckett he's still got about to 10 lengths to make on the leader trevian has never really got seriously involved and now major miller comes wide down towards the third from home so major miller is out in front and uh, AP and got ears pricked, rather dives over it, but is quick and clear of Milo, gone on by about eight or ten lengths from Milo and Imtihan and Magnifico, and open-eyed is a very sandly beaten fifth, failed to live up to expectations here this afternoon. Major Miller comes down towards the second from home. Having made that decisive move, he's got a four-length lead. In fact, Open Eye is trying very hard to get on terms and has landed in second place there. The course did look hopeless, but Major Miller stole a bit of a march at the third from home, but now Imtihan is rushing home on the outside. And amazingly, Open Eye has taken up the running. Open Eye has gone on now from Milo Imtihan. Major Miller, who stopped completely. So, in fact, the confidence was very justified here. Open Eye has absolutely romped home in the end. Open Eye. Under a confident Noel Feely, took him wide throughout for Brendan Duke. Open-eyed is one, Milo is second, Imtihan is third.